Hello, 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 and welcome back to the SLP Corner podcast. This week, I'm really excited. I have a very special guest. Her name is Allison Smith, and she is a speech language pathologist based in Texas. She specializes in feeding, so this podcast is going to be focused on feeding and swallowing in the pediatric population. Allison work has worked in early intervention. She's worked in a children's hospital and she's also worked in a private practice and she's been an SLP for about four years. She went to the University of Texas at Austin for her undergrad and she went to Baylor University for grad school. I'm really excited to have her on to talk about feeding and swallowing. So I thought I could just start off by asking how you how you got into feeding and how you specialize in this area. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on the podcast, Shannon. I'm so excited to bring some awareness of this kind of niche area of pediatric speech language pathology. Like most people, I didn't have any courses in pediatric feeding or swallowing in grad school. I didn't have any placements that talked about pediatric feeding and swallowing, but when I entered the pediatric world in the private practice, I found that a lot of my kids with developmental delays also showed feeding delays. Um, and I had no idea how to treat them. Luckily, my supervisor and some of the other SLPs and OTs at that private practice had specialties in sensory feeding and oral motor. And so I kind of learned some things from them and started taking some CEU courses on my own. Um, after I did the private practice, I transitioned to ECI, which is early childhood intervention. And I just continued to take over 100 hours of continuing ed from a variety of people. And after that, I still felt like I didn't have the mentorship to feel comfortable treating kiddos on my own. So I did something kind of bizarre and I took a 13 week travel position at a children's hospital. I kind of packed up my life and moved five hours away for 13 weeks. And I worked four 10 hour shifts and on my day off, I basically forced the NICU therapist to teach me everything she knew. So after that, I went back to ECI and now I've been seeing pediatric feeding kids for a while, and I absolutely love it. Wow. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of experience. <laughs> that is awesome. I I was thinking we could just start off with talking about some general feeding and swallowing milestones for people who are unfamiliar with them. So yeah, I think it's really important to know what normal feeding and swallowing milestones are so that we're able to identify when something is not typical. So there's a lot of variety on the research with this, but around week 15 in the womb, the fetus will begin swallowing amniotic fluid, sucking on their thumbs and fingers. And then that process gets really solidified around week weeks 32, 34. Um, but as we know, babies are getting born a lot earlier than that nowadays due to medical advancements. Um, so those kiddos would probably have to have an NG tube or OG tube in the meantime because the swallowing mechanism isn't mature enough for PO feeds until week 32. So a lot of NICUs have a general rule saying that no PO feeds are allowed until week 32, um, adjusted age. From birth to six months, a kiddo should be completely bottle or breastfed, whatever the parent chooses is fine. And then at six months, we can begin to introduce some smooth purees if the child is able to sit up by themselves for about two to three seconds. We really want a kiddo to have a strong core to support their swallowing mechanism. From eight to nine months, we want to introduce cup and straw drinking and maybe some meltables. So this could be puffs, teething biscuits, maybe some graham cracker sticks. Nine to 10 months, 
will introduce soft cubes. So like maybe avocado, banana, very soft boiled potatoes. From 10 to 11 months, we'll do soft mechanical. So muffins, scrambled eggs, beans, anything that doesn't require a lot of mastication. At 12 months, we'll transition off of the bottle completely if they haven't done already. If mom chooses to continue breastfeeding, that's totally fine and encouraged. From 15 to 18 months, we introduce hard mechanical. So these are ones that we really have to crunch on. So chips, hard cookies like Oreos, hard raw fruits with peels. And then finally at 18 to 24 months, this is just the period where they're refining their skills and transitioning to a full regular diet. All right, so around the age of two, we're looking for them to have their uh, the regular diet. Yeah, I would say two probably by the latest. Yes. Um, we want them to be eating mostly what the family is eating. Okay, and thank you for going through all that. And oh. also just one little thing, if you, so PO for anyone who's unfamiliar is by mouth. So, yes. <laughs> just in case someone is confused about that. What is the difference? Because we're talking about feeding and we're also talking about swallowing or dysphagia. So dysphagia is a word for kind of swallowing difficulties. So for people out there, what's the difference between a feeding disorder and dysphagia? That's a great question. So feeding is what you're eating and your experience with the mealtime. And dysphagia is how you're managing the foods and the mechanics behind swallowing it. So Dr. K. Toomey has a really great free resource on her website describing the difference between typical picky eating and problem feeding. And um, we can discuss that a little later. So first we can kind of talk about dysphagia and go through all of that. I kind of want to talk about signs, valuation, treatment, and go through that. And then we can move on to feeding and talk about signs um, of like a feeding disorder, the evaluation and treatment. So starting with dysphagia, what are some signs people can watch for dysphagia? If you see your child coughing frequently, choking, taking multiple swallows to get a food down, if you hear congestion during or after a meal, so they sound completely clear before, they're breathing fine, and then after you notice that they sound really mucusy, they have a wet vocal quality after they eat or drink, if you're seeing sudden weight loss, or they're having recurrent respiratory illness, I think that's a definitely a time to talk to the pediatrician to see if a swallowing impairment could be the root cause of all of these things. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if they're seeing any of those signs, check it out with their pediatrician and then they might get a potential SLP referral to further look into their swallowing. Okay, so then how would an SLP evaluate dysphagia? So typically we would start with a bedside evaluation and that's either in the home, um, if you're in a children's hospital, it might actually be a bedside. Um, but this is where we would look at their oral mechanism, so their lips, tongue, cheeks, their hard palate. We would maybe observe them eat, see what textures they're having trouble with, assess their vocal quality, kind of those signs that I talked about earlier, um, and seeing if there's a possibility for aspiration um, that could lead to potentially pneumonia and worst case scenario. And if we do have those suspicions, we would refer for an imaging exam. So that would be an MBSS, which is a modified barium swallow study where a child is taken into a radiology suite and presented a variety of foods that are covered in barium. And then the SLP will interpret what's happening on the x-ray and see the physiology of the swallow. And I think the most important thing with this one is I hear a lot, oh, they passed their swallow study or oh, they failed their swallow study. And it's not a pass or fail exam. The purpose of the exam is to identify any physiological or anatomical impairment so that we can treat those as 
therapist. The goal of the exam is not just to identify the presence or absence of aspiration. Mm-hmm. And then the last type of test is a FEES, which is a fiber optic evaluation of swallow. And this is where a flexible scope with a camera is placed through the nose and you get a full view of the larynx. So this might be ideal for a kid who has had a lot of radiation exposure and the pediatrician is concerned about a modified barium swallow study. So this one doesn't use radiation, it's just a camera. It might also be good for a kid who has some sensory aversions or feeding aversions because if you've ever tasted barium, you know it doesn't taste very good. So some kids will refuse it. So if you have a kiddo who you don't think will tolerate the barium, a fees might be Um, a better route to go. I really like how you said it's not pass-fail because it's not like, yeah, we're not trying to see if if they do or do not have dysphagia. It's kind of like looking at it as a whole to see how is best to treat it. Also, for anyone who is unfamiliar, aspiration is when you choke on, or not necessarily, it could be silent, but it's when food goes down your airway or food or liquid goes down your airway when it should not be going down your airway. (laughs) That is aspiration. And then the other thing is in Canada, we also have VFSS. We call it VFSS or MBS or MBSS. So that's all the same thing for people listening who maybe they heard VFSS. Okay, so so yeah, so it's bedside, a VFSS or a fees. So there's lots of options. Okay, so after evaluation would be treatment. So how would you go about treating dysphagia with kids? Yeah, so if you're seeing some signs of dysphagia on the modified or the fees, then what I like to see is trying some of these treatment strategies while we have a full visual of the swallow. So one of the common ways to compensate for dysphagia is by thickening liquids. So with kiddos or adults who can't tolerate thin liquids, we will thicken it with either a commercial thickener or rice or oatmeal, depending on what we're thickening. But it's really important to try those things during the study because we don't want to just thicken and it may not even be helpful. Um, Another thing is positioning. So maybe they need to be at a full 90 degrees. Maybe they need to turn their head to the left or the right. Maybe they need a chin tuck. Another one, or for an infant maybe, they would need a side, elevated sideline position to slow down the flow of the nipple. Those are some options for positioning. Another thing we might do is limit the bolus size. So if we notice, oh, when this kiddo takes a big drink of water, they aspirate. But maybe if we do only a teaspoon, they may not aspirate. I always like to go the route of least resistance. So if I can avoid thickening by doing a smaller bolus size, I would much prefer that. And then those are all compensatory strategies. So we're not really changing the physiology. We're just kind of working with it. But to change the physiology, we would be doing some rehab exercises. Okay, so that was a pretty thorough walkthrough on the signs of dysphagia, how to evaluate dysphagia, and how to treat dysphagia all with the, well, with children. So Now I want to move on more to feeding disorders so we can kind of walk through what the signs of feeding disorder are, how to evaluate it, and how to treat it. So to begin with, what would you say the signs of a feeding disorder are? Yeah, anytime a kid has some nutritional deficits or a really restricted range of foods, that's when I get concerned about a feeding disorder. Um, Dr. Kay Toomey, who created the SOS approach to feeding, has a really great chart on her website, and it's labeled picky eaters versus problem feeders. And I think it's a great chart to go through, especially with parents and their pediatrician, 
to identify if their child is likely to grow out of this picky eating, which can be typical for a toddler, or if the problem may persist. So some examples of a problem that may persist is a diet of less than 20 foods. If a child is refusing entire categories of foods or texture groups or nutrition groups, if they're crying and tantruming at the table, there's a lot of other things that could constitute a feeding disorder. But I think those are the main signs that a parent will see at the table. If mealtime is becoming stressful, then I would definitely encourage them to seek out a consultation from a speech pathologist. I will make sure to put that link in the caption. So if people are listening, oh, perfect. they can check that out. So, okay, so those are the signs of feeding disorder. And then for evaluation, what does the evaluation look like and who's on the team for an evaluation of a feeding disorder? Yeah, so typically it depends on who feels the most comfortable on the team. So sometimes um, the speech language pathologist might have the most training in terms of feeding. So she'll do the main feeding part of the evaluation. And sometimes the occupational therapist might have more experience. So I always defer to the person who has the most experience because um, they're probably gonna do the most thorough job but we always consult consult with one another. So if I go and do a feeding evaluation on a kid, I still want my OT to come in and talk to me about their core strength and work with me with positioning in the chair. And then we also wanna have the nutritionist or dietitian on board so that they can identify how many calories does this kid need to be getting? How many calories are they currently getting? Are there certain ways we need to space this meal out um, to ensure optimal um, calories? And obviously the pediatrician is a great resource and sometimes a psychologist if needed. So whenever I am evaluating, the first thing I look at is body functions and structures. So I'll assess their biting, their chewing, their all their oral mechanism, parts and pieces, so their tongue, their palate, make sure everything is intact and where it's supposed to be. If they need a swallow study, referring for that to check out that swallowing mechanism. Physiologic stability, so if they're falling asleep at the table, why is that happening? If I'm feeding an infant, if right after I insert the nipple into their mouth, if they're dozing off, why is that happening? Their airway structures, do they have enlarged tonsils or adenoids? Their GI tract, When's the last time they pooped? If nothing's coming out, nothing's gonna wanna go in. So really looking at the whole body and not just what's on the plate and what's going in their mouth because that's not going to give us the whole picture. The next thing I look at is activity and participation. So this would be utensils used or if it's an infant, what type of bottle are we using? What nipple size is it? What foods are they eating for our toddlers? Are they only eating things that are orange and round? Positioning, how are they sitting in their chair? Or again, if it's an infant, how is mom holding them? And how does it vary across environments? So how does it look when mom holds baby versus when dad holds baby? Does baby eat better with dad than mom? Is there a reason for that? Does a kid eat better at daycare than at home? Why is that the case and how can we make that better? And then finally, the last one I wanna look at is environmental and personal factors. So does the family think that this is an issue? Um, ECI is very big on supporting the family and what the family wants to work on. So if family is not concerned that their two-year-old is still on a bottle, all I can do is educate them and we move on and that's okay. It's their child and they know their child way better than I ever will. And then also, do they have access to the foods? You know, if a kid is not eating 
vegetables, but the family can't afford to buy fresh vegetables, maybe it's not really a problem. It's just about access and how can we get those things to that family um, so that they do have it. And also cultural considerations. Um, in some cultures, it's very uh, normal for them to extend bottle feeding or breastfeeding longer than um, maybe some typical Americans would um, think is average. So just really taking all of that into account to, again, not only looking at the child, not only looking at their mouth, but we need to know the whole dynamic. All right. So, so it's a very person-centered, holistic, team-based approach. Yeah. Yeah, definitely family-centered for sure. Family-centered, yes, yeah. Okay, so how do you go about treating feeding disorders? First, it's super important to address any underlying medical issues. So if a child has a GI impairment, such as delayed gastric emptying or reflux or constipation, um, you know, there's certain medications that might help with that. If they have a pulmonology issue, I'd be working really close with pulmonology to make sure that feeding isn't putting unnecessary stress on their body. Because as we all know, breathing comes first, feeding comes next. I would be addressing oral motor deficits. So if they have decreased tongue lateralization, if they're not able to munch and chew, if they're not able to achieve lip closure on a straw or a spoon, we would work on that. And I try to work on everything through food play. So pretending that this grape is a car or an airplane and making it as fun and positive for the kiddo. Food chaining is a really great strategy that was developed by Sherry Fraker. She has a book on Amazon that explains it. And this is where, you know, we might use it with our kiddos with a really limited diet. Say they only eat round chicken nuggets. So you would take the round chicken nugget, that would be their first food, and then you would chain it with something that's really similar. So maybe I would chain it with a round brown Ritz cracker because we have the same shape, we have the same color, both are relatively salty, and then we keep working our way until we get to a, a more nutritious food or even just to expand their diet. So those are kind of the main things that I use during feeding therapy. Um, I use the SOS approach to feeding therapy by Dr. K. Toomey. Definitely would recommend that course. So do you use any special tools during therapy? I do not. And Sherry Fraker and Michelle Dawson, they're both great feeding gurus. And they have one of my favorite quotes that I pretty much live by in feeding therapy. And it's, food is not plastic and food does not vibrate. So why would I stick plastic and things that vibrate in their mouth to teach them to eat food? It's not natural. We have central pattern generators in our brain and chewing only works on chewing. So if I stick a chewy tube in a kid's mouth, that's gonna work on the vertical munching up and down movement. Then if I put a carrot in their mouth, they're gonna go up, up and down. But then what happens when the food gets in their mouth? I haven't taught them how to manage it once they do chew it. So I only do feeding therapy with food to make it practical and functional. That makes sense because it's also like there's so much more going into it. They need saliva. They need the sensation of food and like the taste. Yeah, you're exactly right. There's auditory, visual, and there's even the social piece mm -hmm. of putting something in your mouth and mom getting excited and yeah, you're trying a carrot for the first time. And like you said, the sensory input, managing a bolus, swallowing it, and then you're having to breathe at the same time. So there's a lot more happening than just chewing up and down. 
Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So would you recommend specific utensils to parents? So there are utensils that I think can benefit a kiddo for sure. So using something like a flat spoon is great for working on lip closure. Sometimes when we have a spoon with a large bowl, kiddos aren't able to fully close their lips around that. So parents may scrape the top of their mouth to kind of place the food in there. And the reason that's not ideal is it encourages a tongue thrusting pattern because if something, if you imagine having peanut butter on the roof of your mouth, you're going to work your tongue um, to try to get it off. So a lot of times we scrape on the roof of the mouth and then it comes right back out because their tongue is pushing it to the front. So a flat spoon is great for those kiddos. Any small cup that a child can hold with one hand or two hands, it's just easier for them to learn open cup drinking when they're able to control it. I find kids, especially when they start to enter that independence phase, they don't want me holding the cup for them. But if I'm giving them a cup that's way too big for them, they're not able to manage that either. And then straws that can be cut to fit the cup. So straws from McDonald's, I carry around straws from Sonic that can be cut to fit those smaller cups that you are using. And then, like I said, just food and nothing fancy and you don't have to go out and buy the latest and greatest spoon cup I'm sure whatever you have in your kitchen or pantry right now would do. I love the idea of cutting the straws. Yeah. (laughs) Buying a little straw. It's like just cut cut one in half. That's perfect. And a lot of straws that are designed for kids are way too long. So, you know, they're an inch or two long. And then when they put that in their mouth, the straw is going so far back into their oral cavity that they have to almost resort back to that sucking reflex like a baby. Their tongue is under the straw rather than their lips pulling around it. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Also, I haven't, I I hadn't thought about the flat spoon. That makes so much sense. I know, I feel like it's always the simple things. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Okay, wow. What do you think of jewelry? I do think there's a difference between using a chewy tube to teach chewing versus using a chewy tube for a sensory seeker. So if a kid is needing that sensory input and wanting to bite, on things or people, then I totally think a chewy tube is fine in that instance. I think it's kind of, what is my goal behind this? Am I using this chewy tube to teach this kid how to chew? That's not evidence-based and that's not gonna work. If I'm using this chewy tube because this child is biting his peers because he needs that sensory input and totally use a chewy tube. So for parents that are concerned about their child who may have feeding difficulties, what would you recommend that they do? So I would recommend for them to contact their pediatrician. If they're really concerned, maybe take that chart that Shannon's gonna link to the bottom from Dr. K to me describing the difference between picky eating and problem feeding, just so that y'all can walk through that together I feel like sometimes pediatricians are in and out of the room very quickly, but if we bring a little bit of ammo with us, we're more likely to get the referrals that we want. And then seeking out an evaluation from OT or speech therapist in your area that specializes in feeding. I know in Texas, I'm not sure about other programs, but a parent is able to refer to us without any pediatrician referral. So if you're in Texas and you're listening, um, just contact your local ECI and you can get a free evaluation. It's probably important for parents to look at what the province or state you're in. And then, cause even in, it's always changing province to province, state to state. Yeah. I like the idea of bringing in a resource with you when you go in, because it's so true that all, the pediatricians are so busy. They have so many kids they're seeing and you want to make the most of your appointment. Cause I know in Canada, the wait lists are 
crazy. The last thing I want to kind of talk about is Allison and I talked about this before the podcast, but a lot of the time in our graduate programs, SLPs don't get a lot of education surrounding pediatric feeding. So we will learn more so about the adult population often, but it's not always common that we're going to get a lot of experience with the pediatric population with regards to feeding and dysphagia. So what would you recommend that SLPs do to learn more about pediatric feeding? So I would definitely recommend all the CU courses you can get your hands on. Um, if you're an ASHA member, you have free access to ASHA Learning Pass right now. And there are some great pediatric feeding courses on there. Um, one by Joan Arvinson. I actually think she has two on there. And the one I took was really great. Also, SOS Approach to Feeding. I've mentioned Dr. K. Toomey a time or two. She is kind of the guru behind sensory feeding. Catherine Shaker is an awesome speech language pathologist based out of Florida, and she does a lot of conferences around the U.S. Um, she specializes more so in the infant population, but she does have some older pediatric courses as well. The MedSLP Collective is a great resource. They have some pediatric feeding mentors in their group, so you can reach out and ask questions. They also have some great CEUs on NICU or craniofacial. I would also recommend, if possible, getting a mentor, even if that looks like reaching out on Instagram to someone or reaching out to someone in your community, going out and observing and shadowing other SLPs. You can be like me and move halfway across the state and just force someone to teach you everything. Thing. Also, the First Bite podcast by Michelle Dawson is really great. I think she has close to 100 episodes now. And then the Swallow Your Pride podcast by Teresa Richard is another great one to get you started. Yeah, I feel like reaching out to people, there's the SLP community on Instagram is so big and everyone is so helpful and nice. So I feel yeah. like people online can be so helpful. Okay, well, on that note, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week. This was so helpful. I think it's helpful for, of course, parents and anyone working with small children who they might be worried about, but also SLPs. Like, like I said, a lot of SLPs, they don't have the education with feeding and pediatric dysphagia. So it's really, really helpful to have you on your wealth of knowledge. And your Instagram is at ei.teletherapy. So you can find Allison on her Instagram there. And I'll also take your Instagram in the caption of this podcast so people can find you. So thank you so much for coming on. And I hope everyone enjoyed this podcast. Thanks, Shannon, so much for having me today. All right, I'll see everyone next Monday. 